welcome to this recording from Crossroad International Church. Today we are remembering the tremendous sacrifice Jesus offered on the cross as we celebrate Good Friday. In our service today, we will take a look at the seven last words of Jesus while he was on the cross. Our service format will be a little different in that seven different people will share for a few minutes about each word with a conclusion by one of our pastors. We pray that God will use this recording to minister to you and help you gain a better understanding of our Savior's love for us through His sacrifice. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke 23, verses 32 to 38. Luke 23, 32 to 38, it says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. So my big idea this morning is about forgiveness. And what forgiveness is, I looked this up in the dictionary, there's two meanings for it. One is to stop feeling resentful or angry. So one idea is to stop feeling resentful or angry towards somebody. The other one is to cancel a debt. That's what forgiveness is. So this can be a spouse, parents, kids, friends. We are offended. We are hurt by people. And people hurt us. We do this, and people do it to us. And forgiveness is to stop feeling that way. It can also mean to cancel a debt. Many of you have probably had perhaps employers or even friends or people in your life who maybe have not paid you back for something. I know things that, like that have happened to me in my years in Kuwait. One summer I did not even, I received none of my summer pay for both me and my wife my first year while I was here, which was quite a bit of money. So forgiveness would be canceling the debt. And my big idea is that the cost of forgiveness is proportional to the strength of the offense. I'll say it again if you're a person who takes notes. The cost of forgiveness is proportional to the strength of the offense. Another way you can say this is you cannot understand the beauty and the power of forgiveness until you understand the gravity of the sin. You can't understand the beauty and power of forgiveness until you understand the gravity of your sin. So the offense, for example, uh, two days ago, uh, we were going to bed, my wife and I, and I believe I'd asked her to do something, I think to help, to call somebody to get the cable installed into our building. We moved our TV. 
And because she's busy, she's pregnant, and she worked, she forgot to do that. And I just said something, like just made an angry response about her not doing what she was supposed to do. And that's how I went to bed. And I fell right asleep. Uh, that was the last thing I remember saying, and then I fell right asleep, and then she was very upset she told me the next morning uh, about what I said. And in the morning, I, you know, after some sleep and uh, being refreshed, I remembered uh, I was not responding correctly towards my wife, so I asked for her forgiveness. And of course, she forgave me easily, because the offense was small. The offense was small. I mean, yes, it was angry words. It was not. It was wrong. It was sinful. But the offense was small. So she was. It was. She was quick to forgive me. But there are other situations where the offense is bigger. A few months ago, I had uh, some people who said some things about me that were not true, and it was. It was written down, and it was very ugly, and it was very offensive. So that offense was a little harder to forgive. It took me a, a much longer time to get over that. It wasn't as easy because it wasn't just a, a simple word. It was a much longer, much more involved offense. I, it was more painful. So because there's more pain involved, the, the difficulty increases to forgive, right? Um, Jesus' forgiveness is the greatest because the significance of what we do to God in sin is far worse than we fear. Right? He said, forgive them for they know not what they do. What he, what he doesn't mean, what Jesus does not mean is that they did not know what they were doing. They were casting lots on purpose. They were dividing up his garments. They were mocking him. They were insulting him. They knew what they did. What they didn't know is that they were killing God, their creator, and their sustainer. These were, these were, you can easily look at the scriptures and see that these people were bad people. And we can all admit that. These people were not, not good. They did evil things. How could you look on and watch a man die, especially a sinless man? So that's not what Jesus means. What he means is that they don't understand the gravity, the weight of their sin, of who they were crucifying. It would have been offensive if they just crucified the two criminals, right? Just mocking two criminals. That's common, that happened commonly in the Roman world. It'd be like a big public spectacle. It was basically state-sponsored terrorism where they would crucify people and it'd be a big party. You'd come out and watch. You'd bring a lunch, you'd bring your family, and you'd the fathers would say to their children, this is what you do not do. You do not offend the Roman government. So already this is, like a, this is, this is part of the spectacle. And this is a wrong. The whole, the whole situation is wrong. Crucifying people is wrong. That sort of slow, agonizing, painful death by asphyxiation, it's wrong and it's evil. But imagine the, the reality. These people did not even know it. They did not know that, that was God they were killing. A person who had never, not only not committed a crime, which he did not commit a crime, he did not commit a sin. He did not commit a sin. Now, many of us have not committed crimes, or at least very big crimes. I, I think we've all maybe committed some small crimes. But someone who's never committed a sin, and we are no better than they were, 
We are no better than they were. We would have been there. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he said this, we all carry about in our pockets his very nails. The nails that hung Jesus to the cross, that's our sin, that's our offense, that's our wickedness. We did this. Think about it. Imagine in your pockets the nails of Christ. Because Jesus could come down, right? He said so. I could get, get 10,000 angels, a whole legion of them, to come down and rescue me from this if I wanted to. Right? It wasn't, it wasn't the physical that held him there. It was the spiritual. And it was our sin that held him there. Also, I did not know that we were going to sing How Deep the Father's Love for Us, but I put this down. God put this in my heart. And it says, we read this, Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. So imagine placing yourself there, and we would have also done the same thing. We would have been calling out. We would have been against him. It seems so hard now to think about that, because we most many of us in here love Jesus. But before we were Christians, we hated God. We did not love him. This forgiveness costs so much because the offense is so great. We have spent our lifetimes hating God and his rule in our lives, either actively or passively. And what I mean, there's some people who actively hate God, who actively oppose God. You know, there's the, the new atheists who come out and say things directly against God. That is active hatred. But we also passively hate God as well by not allowing him to control and rule our lives. We don't allow him to have influence in certain areas of our lives, even as Christians. There are some things we say to God, no, this is off limits. This is my world. You can't touch this area. Okay? So we can passively, we passively hated God as non-Christians. You might, not, you might have said to yourself, no, I wasn't a bad person. Chris, I, I, I even went to church weekly. I got good grades in school. I saved myself from my spouse. I pay my taxes. All those things we say in our minds, we justify, but we know even our own consciences condemn us for the evil things that we do. We pretend that we're good, but we are bad, okay? We do bad things, and we are bad. By our very nature, we are evil people. And we hated God. We did not love him. We did not honor him. We did not worship him. We did not put him in the center of our lives where God belongs, the way God made us. God is the center, and we are, are surround him and worship him. But we wanted to go our own way. There's this poem, it's called Invictus, and this kind of summarizes the spirit of the age, of the, of the attitude of the non-Christian world towards God, and it says, this is the last stanza, this is pretty famous, you might know it. It says, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. 
that describes this world and it describes us. We want to be in charge no matter what is on the punishments. We don't want God to rule in our lives. And this is why Jesus had to die. Because we wanted to do our own thing and go our own way. The cost of forgiveness. So that was the offense, the cost of forgiveness. I was talking to a Muslim friend just yesterday. I actually wanted to do some more work on the sermon, but instead I was talking with a friend of mine at work, and we had talked about mercy and forgiveness, and God just put the situation into my mind that I should engage with her a little more further. And she had said, she's a Muslim, she uh, converted to Islam. And I, I said that, you know, as a Christian, I just believe that the evil things we do, God just can't let them go. Because God has parameters to his character. And she said, no, God can do whatever he wants to. And I said, well, can God do evil things? Can God do evil? Can God murder people? And she, her answer was something to the effect of, it might seem like evil, but maybe it's not. But God can do what he wants. And that was what I said. I just don't agree. Because I think God is bound by his own character to be good. And by his being good, he has to punish sin. Sin cannot just go out the window. He can't just say, oh, it's, it's okay, it's not a big deal. I'll let this one slide. No, because any judge who, does, who lets somebody off a guilty crime would be a bad judge. And God is the holy judge. And the irony of the response of the Pharisees and the Romans is that Jesus couldn't save himself precisely because he wanted to save others. That's the irony. He could not save himself because he wanted to save us. The forgiveness cost something so valuable that it had to cost Jesus his life. That's what's held him there. Jesus was forsaken so that we could be forgiven. Jesus is the better Adam. Adam was naked and unashamed, but Jesus was naked and he bore our shame. Adam sinfully substituted himself for God in the garden, but Jesus, as God, substituted himself for sinners. Adam sinned at a tree, but Jesus bore our sin on a tree. So I'll conclude with some application. As Dale pointed out earlier, there's different kinds of people that were around the cross. Were you, are you, ask yourself this question, are you like the religious leaders who thought you were pretty good? I'm a good person. That's what they thought. They didn't need Jesus. They didn't need his salvation. They didn't need his, they didn't need his forgiveness. Are you like them? Are you like the Roman soldiers who are looking for some sort of sign? Do something amazing. Save yourself. Come down. Show, show us another miracle. Or are you like the watchers who haven't made a decision? I just want to see how this plays out. Not making a decision is making a decision. 
Those people who watched and did not repent and come to Jesus, they made a choice. And that choice may have, co may have cost them their eternities. So if you are in this room and you have not put your personal trust in Jesus Christ, I want to ask you today to do that, to let him forgive you of your sins. All you have to do is accept the gift. Jesus did all the work. It's not about based on what we do or how good we are or what we try and accomplish. It's about who he is and what he did. If you are a Christian, if you have made that faith in Jesus for our sins, that he died and he took everything, we should feel deep love because we have received powerful forgiveness. Amen? I'll conclude with this. This is the same book in Luke. This is Luke 7, 41. This is Jesus. This is the scene where Jesus has dinner at a Pharisee's house, and there's a woman who has an alabaster jar who's putting the, the, the ointment on his feet and in his hair and wiping them with her tears. And Jesus says this to the Pharisee. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, that's the Pharisee, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And he skipped down a little bit. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven loves, he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. So we, Crossroad, we have been forgiven much. So we need to have much love in our hearts. We need to celebrate our forgiveness, what we've been saved from. We have all sinned. But if you don't understand the depth of your sin and the things that you have done, you will not understand the beauty of the forgiveness. We also need to mourn for our sin. What do you need forgiveness for? What do you need to forgive? What do you need forgiveness for in your life? We all sin every day every hour. What do you need forgiveness for? And Jesus empowers us to forgive. So what do you need to forgive by the power of Jesus? Jesus empowers us to forgive because we know that the forgiveness we give is less than what we have received. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you that we have sinned much and we have been forgiven much. We love you. And we thank you for the forgiveness you offer. We did not know what we were doing. We did not know the depth of our sin until you came and rescued us. And God, I just pray that you would help us to love you, that we'd see our sin more clearly and more accurately. And that would make the beauty of the forgiveness that you give us freely that much more powerful. We ask for this in your great name, King Jesus. We all said, amen. And for this word from the cross, I direct us to Luke chapter 23, verse 43, where it says, And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me 
in paradise. Scripture says he said to him, who was the him? Well, this him was a man. This him was a guilty man, a man condemned to die for the actions of his, that he had undertaken in his life. And here in his hour of death, he has an opportunity to face eternal life face to face, eye to eye, with the person who can give him eternal life. This man is bearing the consequences of the bad choices that he made in his life. There are three men there that day. One man Jesus has made a promise to. Another man is there and he is unrepentant. So we have one man who's very repentant, one man who's totally arrogant and not willing to repent of his ways. Both of these men are looking at Jesus, the author of eternal life. Well, the third man we've mentioned is Jesus, an innocent man. He's hanging there not because of what he's done. Even the criminal said that he was innocent. But he's there because he chose to fulfill a promise that he made to us long ago, where God said that he would send his son to die on the cross and pay the penalty for our sins. Well, let's take a look at Luke chapter 23, the verse 39, where it says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. In other words, this man was saying, I just want to get out of this trouble. Can't you do a miracle? Can't you show me a sign? Can't you just get me down off this cross? And if you do that, then I would believe in you. We sometimes pray prayers like that. Prayers of desperation. Prayers that come from no real desire to serve God. But prayers that just say, get me out of this tough spot, God, and I'll serve you all the days of my life. Those kinds of prayers come from a hardened heart. And this particular criminal was very hardened in his heart. The response of the first man to this is quite interesting. We see that in verse 40, 41, and 42. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly? For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Here's a guilty man. A man who wasted his life. And yet in this moment before he dies, he has this faith-filled moment where he recognizes Jesus for who he is. Let's set the scene for a moment. There are three men hanging on crosses. There are soldiers standing around. There are some bystanders and there are some women watching the proceedings. Where are the disciples? They are the ones who have been taught about eternal life. They're nowhere to be found. And so in this moment, this precious moment, when Jesus is dying on the cross, one guilty man, a condemned man, is the only one there who can express faith-filled words. And he cries out to Jesus. And Jesus' response, in the midst of his own suffering, we come to our verse for today. Truly, he said to him. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's quite a statement. 
But that statement is either true, or it's giving this dying man false hope. See, it's a meaningless statement unless Jesus is really who he said he was. If Jesus is not the Son of God, it's a meaningless statement. If Jesus is not able to take this man to eternal life, it's a meaningless statement. It's also a meaningless statement unless there's a resurrection coming in three days. You see that if our story of Christianity ended at the cross, there'd be no story to tell. Just the story of a good man who died. But on Easter Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection. And that was what makes this a true statement. Today, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Well, this is a wonderful message of hope on this terrible day. On this terrible day when we celebrate that Jesus died for you and for me. There's a song that I love to hear sung in church. I'm never able to sing it fully myself. And the, the, one of the lines in this song says, It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. I'm unable to sing that because I well up with emotion every time we come to that part in that song. So this Jesus gave you and me eternal life. And Jesus says to us today, Today I say to you that I overcame death. Today I say to you I'm living, I'm alive. Today I'm saying to you that I'm at the right hand of the Father. Today I'm saying that I'm making, making preparation for a place for you. Today I'm, I say to you again, I am coming again to take you to be with me. Well, this one thief, this one criminal, he called out to Jesus and was promised eternal life. Have you called out to Jesus and asked him for eternal life? The Bible tells us that if we proclaim with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is who he said he was, we will be saved and we will have eternal life. I hope to meet that criminal someday. I'd like to hear his story. I'd like to hear what made him make that declaration right there at the end of his life. But more importantly, I'm looking forward to meeting the one who could say, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I hope that you're ready to meet him in paradise as well. John chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he uh, loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. This was the third word spoken by our Lord from the cross. In the end, Jesus was not absolutely alone. At his cross, there were these four women who loved him. They are a strange company of one, the, that is Mary, uh, the wife of Clopas. We know nothing, but we know something of the other three. There was Jesus' mother's sister, his aunt. In John's Gospel, she is not named. However, William Barclay says that 
a study of the parallel passages of Matthew, Mark chapter 15, verse 40, and Matthew 27, 56, make it quite clear that she was Salome, the mother of James and John, the gospel writer himself, both of them disciples of Jesus, the brothers who were known as the Sons of Thunder. With this sorrowing group stood Mary Magdalene. All we know about her is that out of her, Jesus cast seven devils, Mark chapter 16, 9, and uh, Luke 8, 2. Jesus' loved, Jesus's love had rescued her, and her love was of such a kind that it could never die. It was as if a motto was written on her heart, I will never ever forget what Jesus has done for me. As Jesus looked down upon them, he saw among them his own grieving mother. The heart of Mary was torn apart by the agony of her son, a fulfillment of the prophecy Simeon had made 33 years ago, that a sword would pierce a soul. What is more, Mary was almost certainly a widow by this stage. Jesus understood the loneliness his mother would endure in the days ahead. He was Mary's eldest son, and even, um, and even in the moment of his cosmic battle, he never forgot the duties that lay to his hand. Jesus could not commit his mother to the care of his stepbrothers, for they did not believe him yet, references John chapter 7, verse 5. Besides, John, who was present at the foot of the cross, was a disciple whom Jesus loved dearly, and hence it was to him that the familial commission was given. Jesus said to her, that is Mary, woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. Chuck Swindoll explains the commission this way. What Jesus says in effect is, John, I charge you to adopt this woman as your mother. You are to take her into your home and into your life. That means you are to love her and care for her as I would, were I to continue to live. She is to become as precious and dear to you as she has been to me. And from the unwavering response of the disciple, we conclude that he kept it. According to John Piper, there are at least three reasons that this word of Jesus to his mother and to the beloved disciple is a, is a tremendous encouragement to our faith. The first reason is this. If Jesus was so eager to care for his mother in her hour of need, how much more is he eager to care for his disciples who hear the word of God today and do it? Ordinarily, we would reason just the opposite. That is, if Jesus loved his disciples who were not his relatives, how much more would he love his own mother? But Jesus didn't view things in the ordinary way. With him, it was strangely true that if he loved his mother with a natural affection, how much more could his obedient disciples bank on his love? Jesus says in Luke 8.21, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. The second reason is this. If Jesus could provide for the needs of his own in a moment of his deepest weakness and humiliation, how much more can he provide for us in our need in his present power and exaltation? 
Not only are we as an obedient disciple in a better position than Jesus' own mother to receive blessing at the hand of the Lord, but he himself is now in a better position to give it to us than he was to her then from the cross. The third reason is this. It illustrates for us the benefits of the church, the body of Christ. Contrary to custom and expectation, Jesus did not entrust the care of his mother to his stepbrothers or sisters, but to his disciple. The new relationship between Mary and John illustrates for us the provision of family made for us in the body of Christ, the church. How do we then respond to our Savior's gift of salvation? His wondrous love, his overwhelming goodness and compassion towards us. Isaac Watts gives the answer in the fourth stanza of his great hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Where the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. If you have never personally thanked Jesus for his supreme sacrifice, and surrendered your soul, your life, your all to him. I invite you to do so today. May God bless us all. Amen. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the fourth statement Jesus made on the cross. You know, the first statement he made, we can all understand that because he was saying, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they do. And Jesus was full of forgiveness, full of compassion. So we can understand that. Second statement we can understand also. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Because Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And he gave the man eternal life. He gave him more than he asked for. The third statement we can understand too because Jesus loved his mother, he loved his disciples, he followed the law of course and he took care of his mother even in his death. We can understand this. However, this fourth statement is beyond our understanding. There's something startling about him saying, my God, my God. Jesus never addressed God except by Father. He always he taught us to pray, Father. But on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, addressing the Father and the Holy Spirit. But before this took place, there was a divine darkness that fell over the land. This was a supernatural darkness. It wasn't an eclipse. No eclipse had lasted three hours. From noon till three, Jesus hung there silently. It's the most solemn time in the history of the world. It's his story. It's all about him. The darkness rolled in and everything got quiet. You can hear before this happening, the mocking and the jeering and almost the, the demons themselves making fun of Christ. But when the darkness comes, 
midday becomes midnight and everything is silent. The soldiers, everyone else is looking around. What is this? What is this? And Jesus is silent. He is bearing our sin on the cross. You know, there's a reason why Jesus said, described hell in many places as the outer darkness. Because the darkness represents the judgment of God. For three days, darkness fell over Egypt. During the plagues, for three hours, it falls upon Christ. The sinless one, the Lamb of God, the high our high priest, both the sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb, he hung there experiencing something we'll never know. In fact, God shrouded it for a reason. We'll never know. But the word forsaken is one of the most tragic words in the English language. It is the most tragic word in any speech. We've probably all had nightmares before where we, as a child, may have been abandoned or where our parents become cruel or become heartless with no love. The frightening aspect of a mother with children being abandoned by her husband or children abandoned by their parents. There's nothing worse. There's nothing more heartbreaking. This word forsaken has a lot of import. Jesus was forsaken. He was really forsaken. God turned his loving face away from his son. Never happened before in all eternity. There was an unbroken communion as Jesus lived here for 33 years. Never, never broken, never once. Jesus addressed and talked to the Father, said goodnight, told him to see him again in the morning. At this time, in this hour, which Jesus came to do this very thing, our sin was laid upon him, the sinless one. But Jesus was innocent during all of his time. He never became a sinner. He was sinless. And it took the spotless, sinless Son of God, Son of Man, to die in our place. The only Redeemer we could possibly have. We couldn't redeem ourselves. Not even the greatest person who ever lived, except for Jesus, could have died in our place. So this abandonment was one of the, was probably the ingredient in that cup that the Father had him drink that was the most, that was the hardest thing to go through. He never spoke when he was being physically tortured, when his beard was being pulled out, when he was mocked. He was a lamb before the shearers. But during this time, when the darkness started to leave, before, just before it left, Jesus cried, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the darkness dissipated. You know, now we should never assume that even the people, everyone in our church knows Jesus personally. We should never assume it. 
because we're to preach the gospel. We're to preach it to anyone who can hear it. Sometimes there's a darkness in our own lives. Sometimes, sometimes it is so thick that we don't see even our own sin. We don't see our actions. As Jesus said, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We think we're okay. But the Bible says to examine yourself to see if you be in the faith. Examine yourself to see if you be in Christ. This is the light of the world. Jesus is the creator. He is the cause and completer of our faith. He's the author and finisher. During this time, when darkness was over all the land, people didn't know what was going on. They, they, there were people who weren't at the cross at that time, and they experienced this darkness. The high priest, who was about ready to sacrifice a lamb, and the curtain going to be split soon, same thing. There were torches around there. They were trying to see what was going on, but no one saw the depths of the agony that Jesus went through because God hid it. It's almost as creation itself shrouded Jesus because he bore not only our sins and not only died for us, he died unto the Father also as a propitiation for our sins, and he also died for the cosmos. He is going to redeem the entire universe. We'll have a new heaven and a new earth because Jesus was forsaken that we might not be forsaken. He was abandoned that we would never be abandoned. We will never feel this. We will never, as a Christian, feel an abandonment of God because he will never leave us. He told us this. But he was. Thank you. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of our faith. Please turn with me, if you can, to the Gospel according to John chapter 19, verse 28. Jesus knew that everything was now finished, and to fulfill the scriptures, he said, I am thirsty. This statement is traditionally called the word of distress. Among the seven words that Jesus spoke from the cross, this is his only human expression of his physical suffering. No doubt, Jesus experienced excruciating pain and extreme thirst while being crucified. The wounds inflicted upon him in the scourging as his flesh was being ripped from the back, resulting in severe rheumatic blood loss, the crowning with thorns, and the nailing to the cross are now taking their toll. These two words, I thirst, or I am thirsty, are the evidence of his perfect humanity. Angels do not thirst. God does not thirst. Only humans thirst. I thirst. By this time, <coughs> Jesus had been hanging on the cross almost for six hours. As we all know, crucifixion was the most 
painful means of torture and death that man has ever devised. He had suffered great loss of blood and fluids from his body, and his thirst must have been very, very intense. Medically speaking, what Jesus was experiencing at that time was severe hypovolemic shock because of blood loss and severe dehydration. When we realize what had happened in the preceding hours, we see that Jesus must have suffered from exhaustion, hunger, fatigue, as well as thirst. Just the night before, he had instituted the Lord's Supper in the upper room with his disciples. Then he went into the Garden of Gethsemane, where he spent many hours agonizing in prayer. Remember, his sweat became as drops of blood. Then in the Garden of, there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was arrested and taken to Caiaphas and the High Council in the middle of the night. He was examined and condemned. He was held there until morning and without rest, without any rest. Then he was produced before Pilate in the morning. We examined him and sent him to Herod, who in turn sent him back to Pilate. Then he was scourged and sentenced to death. Then he had to carry that heavy wooden cross for almost three hours in the streets of Jerusalem on the way to Golgotha. Jesus said, I am thirsty. It's not only a statement of physical reality, but also in order to fulfill the scripture, he said that statement. Psalm 69, verses 21, 20, 20 and 21 read like this. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my foot, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. The prophetic Psalm 22 anticipated our Lord's passion and speaks of his condition. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is, my heart is like wax. It, was, it has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my jaws. Jesus was God. God the Son died on the cross for our sins. But Jesus was also perfectly human. As a man like us, he felt hunger, thirst, fatigue, and solitude. Who would have thought 
that the one who came as a source of living water for all men would one day experience thirst. Who would have thought that the one who created all the rivers, springs, and the oceans in the world would say and ask, would, would say, I am thirsty. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, he told the Samaritan woman. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Today, we rejoice in the fact that Jesus suffered physical thirst so that our thirst for the water of life might be quenched. The one who quenches the thirst of man's soul says, I thirst. Have you been to the fountain of life that Jesus offers so freely to all of us? Is your soul dry and thirsty for refreshment? Come to the Master today. Turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 19. We're reading the next few verses, 29 and 30. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge on the sour wine and a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let me ask you a direct question this morning. Are you afraid to die? Are you afraid of a time when you will take your last breath? When, as Shakespeare put it, we shuffle off this mortal coil. What will death hold for you? And I don't want to be morbid, I just want to be realistic. Because unless Jesus comes back in your lifetime, there is one thing that is absolutely guaranteed, that you will die. You will die. Now in this passage that I just read, read of another death. A man dies a horrific death on an instrument of extreme torture. This man is barely recognizable. His body has been whipped to a bloody pulp. There is a crown of thorns upon his head, disfiguring him. His beard wrenched from his face, nails in his hands and in his feet, driven through into the cross. Yet before he dies, he speaks. 
And what he speaks are words of life. I want you to see in the few minutes that we look at this passage here, how your fear of death, if that is where you are, can be transformed into a living hope of life. This is the gospel. Now, have you ever wondered why Jesus said, it is finished? You know, it wasn't Jesus' followers who said, oh, it's finished. You know, I, I really wish something had happened. I thought Jesus was the one. I thought he was going to chase away all these Romans, and we were going to have this new kingdom come in. I'm, I'm so disappointed. I'm so sad. It, it's, it's such a shame. It's more than a shame. It wasn't the women at the cross that we heard about earlier. It wasn't like Mary or others who, from their bitter groanings, cried out, it's finished, he's done, he's died. It wasn't them. It wasn't the Roman soldiers who mocked and jeered and said, he's finished, what a loser. Why didn't he just say to Pilate, no, no, I'm, I'm not the Christ. You wouldn't have to be up there. You wouldn't have to die. And it wasn't the religious leaders proudly boasting, he's finished. Good riddance. We don't want him around anymore. No. It was a barely recognizable man, barely alive man, gasping for the last few breaths of life who said, it is finished. But what was finished? That is a really good question. And we could spend months looking at it from different angles, from what the Bible says about what is finished. But there's one thing that the Bible certainly makes very, very clear. And that is our being made to have a right relationship with a perfectly pure and holy God. Or to put it another way, salvation. You see, God has a plan, and it says this in Acts, Acts 2. This Jesus was delivered up according to, listen to this, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, new crucified and killed him. It was not an emergency plan to save humanity. It wasn't some kind of knee-jerk reaction to the problem of our sin. It was a plan from way back in eternity past. It was a plan from before the foundation of the world. It was the only way God could destroy sin and not destroy people whose hearts were full of sin. And that's why Jesus said, it is finished, because that plan of salvation was finished. Why did he say these words? One of the reasons, amongst many, is he said them for you and for me, sitting here today. The full authority of Almighty God is in these words. It is finished means we can be absolutely sure that God's way of salvation is unshakable, 
unchangeable, irrevocable, always true, dependable, and eternal. And that is so important to realize. Why? Well, if you're not yet a Christian, um, I hope there's some people here today who are not yet Christians, and I hope that you will become a Christian, because it means that you can trust God to keep his word. He's proven he is absolutely and utterly trustworthy by showing the extent of his love by taking your sin on himself and offering you eternal life. You don't have to fear death anymore. Jesus tasted it for you. What do you have to do to earn this salvation? <laughs> Nothing. It is finished. And that is so wonderfully liberating. Even as a Christian, I find that so wonderful and refreshing. I don't have to do anything to earn salvation or earn my way to heaven. I don't have to keep a check on how much bad I've done, how much good I've done, and hope that in the end, somehow, the good is a bit more than the bad and that actually I'll be okay. I don't have to be worried that there'll be some point after death where I will be punished for some time before I can go to heaven. It is finished. I want to linger on these words just, just a little longer before time is out. For you who are Christians here this morning, I know there are a good number. There are times when we can be just overwhelmed by our sin. We can groan inwardly. We ache. And a little deceiving voice speaks in our ear. I'm sure it's not just me. It goes something like this. Matt, you are a hypocrite. You're a liar. Just look at your life. What a mess. Call yourself a Christian. If people really knew what you were like, Matt, they wouldn't be around you at all. You can't get anything right. You can't even live up to your own standards, let alone God's. You're rubbish. Let me share some words with you and then some truth. The words are from a hymn. That's a beautiful hymn. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, Upward I look. I see him there who made an end of all my sin because the sinless Savior died. Oh, my guilty soul is counted free for God, the just. Oh, he's satisfied to look on him and to pardon me. In other words, brothers and sisters, it is finished. Luke twenty-three forty-six says, 
Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. Some translations of the Bible say he commends his spirit to the Father, or he entrusted or gave. Jesus is actually quoting King David in Psalm 31.5. And King David said, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You redeem me, Lord, God of truth. When David wrote this psalm, he was coming from the context of protection. When Jesus quotes this, and he's not saying scripture as his last dying breath to be uber spiritual. No, he's saying this because he is saying that he fully trusts in God the Father. He trusts in God the Father's perfect will for Jesus to die on the cross for us. He knew that he was the only atonement for our sin. He also trusts that God the Father is going to re resurrect him on the third day and that he has the power to do that. Jesus' death and his soon-to-be resurrection will fulfill the prophecies just as he did when he was born and just as God is always true to his word. The second thing I notice when I read this verse is that it was Jesus' choice. In Isaiah 53.10 it says, Yet it was the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Jesus chose to release his spirit. It wasn't the cross. It wasn't the nails in his body. It wasn't the crown of thorns, the beatings, the whippings, the hate that, a man, that, a man, that came from the crowd of the people that he was going to die on that cross for. It was Jesus that released his spirit to God the Father. He gave it to him freely and willingly, just as he died on that cross for us freely and willingly. Jesus suffered being separated from God because he knew he was the only way to close the gap of separation of, between God and us. John 14, 6 says that Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one can come to the Father except through Jesus. He was the perfect and final sacrifice. In 1 Peter 1, verses 19 through 20, it says, It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began, but now he has revealed him to, to him to you in these last days. What Jesus is saying here when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, he's saying, Father, Take my life as payment for their sins and spare their lives. Take my life. The perfect human being, the only one, the spotless lamb, take my life. He willingly did that for us. What kind of love is that? Through his death, Jesus demonstrated for us the ultimate example of love and obedience. Philippians 2.8 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The purest form of obedience. Now I have children, and when I ask them to do a chore, they're going to be obedient, or there's going to be some discipline in our house. But sometimes that obedience is not as pure. It's more like, a, fine, okay, we'll do it. Not Jesus. Jesus, he did it. Willingly, he went to that cross. 
And why did he do it? Because in 1 John 3.16, it says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. He did it because he loved us. Amen. The Gospel of John, chapter 16 and verse 28, Jesus says, I come forth from the Father and have come into the world. And again, I leave the world and go back to the Father. You know, we're here today talking about the crucifixion of Christ, His death and His burial. And I heard a wonderful message right after I was saved. And it was entitled, It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. You know, this is kind of a solemn day when we gather and celebrate the crucifixion of Christ, the death, the suffering, what He paid for us. But I want to invite you to come back Sunday evening to this place at 6 o'clock because it may be Friday and the disciples for them things looked grim really to them when Jesus says it is finished they agreed it's finished I mean even to the place to where Peter says I'm gonna go back to my old job I mean, it's over. My job's gone. I don't have any work anymore. You know, the masters, it's finished. Let's go fishing. But then Sunday morning came, and I heard Anley Stanley last, uh, I think in 2014 at Easter. This was the title of his sermon. Nobody thought there would be no body. Think about that. The women went to the tomb expecting to find his body. But when they arrived, there was no body. So I want you to come back on Sunday night and let's celebrate that there was no body in the tomb you bow your heads and let's pray father we just come to you and we thank you for this wonderful time we thank you for what was done for us upon the cross father we sing that song and we say i will never know the cost that put my sin upon the cross Jesus even said, what love does a man have that he would lay down his life for his friends? But Jesus, you laid your life down for your enemies. Those that had turned their back upon you, those that had scourged you and mocked you, those that nailed your precious hands and feet to the cross, and if you could look down from that cross and say, Father, forgive them. Help us to look at those around us that have done things that have offended us and likewise say, Father, forgive them.
And I would be remiss on a Good Friday if I didn't ask, is there anyone here among us that maybe you've been to church all your life, but you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior? Or maybe you've come into this place as a guest of someone and have never taken that step to say, Jesus, I accept what you did on the cross. And I'd like to give you that opportunity today. If there's anyone here you'd like me to pray for you, if you'll just raise your hand, I don't want to embarrass you, I'll pray for you. Is there anyone? Okay, we're all believers here today, so let me pray for you that you will go out of this place and you will show forth what Jesus has done for us for eternity. Father, we just come to you and I lift up my brothers and my sisters. Father, every one of us comes to you as sinners in need of a Savior. And we ask today that you would accept us and that you would be with us. That, Father, we would go from this place understanding the tremendous price that was paid for us to be called the sons and the daughters of God. Jesus, we worship you today. We don't worship the cross. It was an instrument of death. We worship you, Lord Jesus, because you were willing to die that death for our sins, for the payment that we could not pay. And we give you the honor and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand for the benediction, please? <clears throat> May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the sweet, sweet fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us now and forevermore. And may He make His face to shine upon you and may you go from this place with the peace that passes all understanding, ruling and reigning in your hearts, and may you understand that it is finished. And may we come back on Sunday and declare together, He is risen. Amen. Go in peace in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Spend some time in fellowship. God bless.